Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Essie Dujan is an acclaimed novelist. She's won the Giller Prize twice for her books Half-Blood Blues and Washington Black. This year, she published a book of essays adapted from her Massey lectures called Out of the Sun on race and storytelling. Our producer, Cheryl Sutherland, interviewed Essie about the people who often become invisible in the stories we tell, including in our own Canadian history. This is The Decibel. Hello, Essie. Hi, Cheryl. Delighted to be here. It's great to be talking to you today. Um, Essie, you're known for your works of fiction, but your latest book is a work of nonfiction. And I wanted to know, why did you decide to go the nonfiction route for this book? You know, I was asked to do the the Massey Lectures, where people, um, you know, different thinkers and scholars and, and writers and artists tackle subjects uh, that they are extremely knowledgeable about or that are close to them. And they're all nonfiction, essayistic uh, lectures. And so, you know, having taken it on, um, you know, I did that with the understanding that it would give me a chance to kind of dig into some of the histories and stories of historical figures that I you know, that I might not uh, get to in this lifetime in terms of writing novels, but that I'd been fascinated by. Mm. Um, marginalized figures or, or stories that um, are um, sort of not so widely known um, historically, you know, centering around black figures throughout the entire diaspora and not just Canadian figures, or stories and figures that we may have some familiarity with, but, um, you know, situating them within a new context. I wanted to know, you know, is there anything particular about this moment in time that compelled you to write a, a book about race and storytelling? Yeah, obviously, um, race and stories and marginalized figures have been, you know, preoccupations since the very outset of my my career. But at this moment in time, I feel like these pieces were really informed by, like, I, I started writing um, shortly after the murder of George Floyd and, um, you know, wrote for an entire year and just looking at the progression of, I guess, the advent of global uh, protests, you know, surrounding, you know, questions of police brutality and, and social inequity and social justice. And, and so these things were very much at the forefront uh, of my thinking when I was, uh, you know, sitting down to write. You actually write in the book about how you got through this time of street protests and illness and anguish and bewilderment was by, quote, the quiet dredging up of these lives from other times and the attempt to discover how, if at all, they have shaped our own. Can you explain how dredging up these stories of the past, some of them forgotten, helped you? One of the things that, for me, at least reading historical fiction, uh, and just, I guess, any historical narratives throughout my lifetime is that you begin to see patterns in things. I guess it points towards the idea that the moment that you're living in isn't, it's uniquely itself, but that there are always precursors. Mm-hmm. So I've always found that very, um, comforting isn't the right word, but very instructive mm-hmm. because it points towards um, 
this idea that history is a series of gestures and that there are moments of, you know, that are hugely fraught and then moments in which uh, there seems to be a kind of resolution. And when you're looking at historical stories, not that history ever has an end, uh, but that you can begin to see trends and shifts and, and the full arcs of stories and, and pieces. And I think when you're living in, in a current moment of trauma, it sort of feels like it's endless and, and you know, you can get mired in, in things. And so there's a kind of comfort in history in showing us that there is always a kind of turning point uh, in any moment. Uh, also, when we look at history um, and we look at certain figures located with certain eras, you know, we can begin to ask ourselves what the through line looks like. Yeah. in terms of where we're sitting today and how much has really changed and what still needs to change and you know how much have we really reckoned in a, a very concrete way with certain issues and when what continues to dog us and where has real progress you know actually been made so these are some of the things that um looking at these stories and these histories brought up for me you know one thing that i loved about this book you know, you talk about history and these forgotten stories, and then you also bring in your own life. You know, I learned a lot about your relationship with your mother. Um, you had this really incredible story about being at a, at a sleepover when you were eight and um, uh, kind of figuring out this, this otherness of yourself. And I mean, it was wonderful for me to find out bits and pieces about your life, but that's like a very personal thing to do in a book. And I was wondering why you wanted to bring in your own experience when you're talking about race and storytelling. Yeah, I think to tell the stories of racism or to tell the story of racism in a very personal way or looking at it through you know, a personal lens is something that allows, it, it's kind of like, it does what fiction does. It allows the reader to enter an experience that maybe they themselves would never live out and would never be exposed to. And to really, you know, get into that skin and, and maybe to understand in a little bit more of, of a visceral and innate way just what it feels like to be discriminated against. And, you know, that for me has always been the strength of, of fiction is this idea of slipping into the, the psyche and the body and, you know, of another being and, and confronting various experiences with them, whether they're experiences that you're familiar with or, or whether they feel completely alien to you, to be able to do that, you know, and really occupy somebody else's experience is, is a real gift. And so, you know, I knew I wanted to explore these historical stories and to, of course, explore, um, you know, various facts, but I really wanted to ground those facts and those, those other historical stories through, uh, through my own more contemporary experience, uh, just so, so that people do, you know, who maybe, or even people who have experienced something very similar, I think it can be very comforting to read uh, that that this isn't something that is, um, obviously it's, it's depressing and distressing, uh, but it's also something that really, um, you know, puts you in that seat, whether you've never experienced something like that or whether, uh, you know, whether you take comfort from not being the only one who's experienced something like that. There's a lot of interesting themes you bring up in the book. And 
one that I found really compelling because it's something I really didn't think about until reading your book is about ghosts and how when we talk about ghosts, race often gets left out. Can you talk about why you wanted to explore ghost stories and race? Ghost stories strike me as yet another thread of or another expression of our collective history, right? We, we tell ghost stories about certain places and, and what we're really doing is we're dredging up kind of secret history of that place. I think until very recently, I hadn't heard a lot of indigenous ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up in Alberta and I was so struck by that and also struck by the idea that there are no, or that I hadn't heard any ghost stories that emerged out of the communities, uh, black communities that had settled Northern Alberta. And that was of some fascination to me. So I, you know, I really thought that that was, it's another way of telling our history or an enlargement of our history in which, again, there's, you know, there's been a marginalization. Um, Another one of the themes that you talk about in the book is slavery. And it's something that I found interesting the way you wrote about it, because, you know, we tend to think about slavery in the perspective of the U.S., but, you know, you talk about Europe, you talk about the early relationship China had with African slaves, which I found really fascinating. I didn't know about that. And then, of course, you talk about Canada's relationship to slavery and how we tend to think that slavery did not exist here. Why do you think it's important to talk about the existence of slavery in Canada? I think... For me, the surprise has always been, you know, I grew up in Western Canada. I'm from Calgary, born and raised. And this idea that Black histories were were completely expunged from the narrative of what we consider to be, say, Albertan history, Hmm. uh, that this was, this gave me a sense of growing up in a way in a kind of void. I grew up with a sense that Black histories were something that were, you know, not at all rooted in Alberta, but something that had taken place elsewhere, whether this was, you know, the grand sort of narrative ghosting us from our neighbors to the south, or whether this was the story of of Black people in the East, which was not something that I learned about in school. And, you know, when we spoke about Canadian slavery at all, it was always the story of of the Underground Railroad yeah. and of, you know, Canada being sort of the guiding North Star and everybody finding, uh, you know, living in, in terrible conditions in the United States and then coming up and finding that, there you know, here was paradise, here was freedom, uh, but not really looking at the terms of that freedom and that disenfranchisement uh, that occurred with, you know, not being allowed to vote and, and all of these things. We had slavery for over 200 years um, in New France um, and in parts of the Maritimes and in Ontario, and that this is something that we don't really discuss. If our relationship to slavery is just the story of the Underground Railroad, well, that's an extreme, you know, that's a very different um, story of slavery than the actual fuller picture, right? Which was much more complex and complicated. And we don't give ourselves the chance for any kind of reconciliation with those centuries of slavery when we turn our backs on that. I'm going to end on something that stuck with me from your book. You wrote in the book about a quote, in the aftermath of Barack Obama's election, I was often asked by interviewers if we'd arrived in a post-racial age. I wonder why people kept asking and do they really believe the presence of a single, albeit formidable, biracial man in the White House could destroy all traces of a noxious past? 
And then you say, it dawned on me that the question didn't want to be answered. The questions were just expressing a deep, unsatisfying longing. And I just found that so interesting. Um, and I wanted to know, you know, after doing all of this research, learning about these histories, you know, is the concept of a post-racial age even something that's worth trying to accomplish? You know, in one sense, it's worth trying to accomplish um, because the advent of a post-racial age obviously means the end of racism and the end of making noxious distinctions uh, and categorizations and, and coming with preconceived notions of things. You know, on another level, if we look at race just in terms of, uh, of physical differences and physical characteristics, I mean, <laughs> uh, I've always been dismayed uh, when somebody confronts me with the, with the phrase, you know, oh, I don't see race or, or you know, I, I don't see you know, I don't think about people in terms of being black or white. It's like, well, those physical distinctions do exist. exist and yes. there's something, um, I mean, the human psyche is always uh, sort of always confronting. But the question is, what are the values that we can imbue those physical characteristics with? And, and you know, are, are they negative? Are they positive? And I think part of how we come to form our conclusions is through you know, obviously, it, it, these things are cultural. Um, you know, it, it's not innate. Race is not, uh, race is, is obviously a construct. It's a cultural construct. You know, I think what really heartens me and, and what I'm really excited about is some of the artists that I write about uh, in the book, like, you know, Kahinde Wiley or uh, Harmonia Rosales, just all of these artists who are kind of reclaiming um, black representations and playing with our ideas of, of history uh, through imagery, you know, and we're seeing this in, in novels as well, uh, you know, something like um, Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, beautiful novel, The Water Dancer, and how that just completely, I guess, forces us to reimagine uh, Harriet Tubman and, and um, the history of American slavery as a whole. And, you know, I think it's just very exciting this way of trying to, I guess, reset the way that we've come to envision race and to also to envision racial legacies and uh, offering maybe new new ways of seeing. And it's been very exciting, very, very exciting. Well, Essie, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure to read your book and now to talk to you about this book. So, so thanks again for, for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. And Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Cheryl Sutherland, Essie Adujan, and to the Globe Arts and Globe Events teams who brought them together to celebrate the Globe 100. You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at ManikaRW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.